If your childhood was anything like my childhood, it was full of stories of pirates ravaging the high seas. Whether it was Peter Pan and the Lost Boys battling Captain Hook or Long John Silver and Billy Bones in Treasure Island, or the fearsome Blackbeard and the Queen Anne's Revenge, or more recently, Jack Sparrow and the Tales of the Black Pearl, pirates were the thing of legend that set young imaginations ablaze. I was trying to look for a good metaphor to use to talk about the sacrament of resistance. And it was like, do I use Star Trek Federation's valiant struggle against the, to resist the board? Uh, whose motto was literally resistance is futile? Or do I conjure up the images of Avatar The Last Airbender and how the motley crew overthrew the malevolent Fire Lord Ozai? There are so many great stories of resistance in our world. The image of pirates became the clear winner to talk about the sacrament of resistance when I realized that Harriet Tubman would have been a pirate if she only had a boat. I think pirates get a bad rap because they are not the ones who get to tell their stories. Pirates were those who resisted the empires of the 17th and 18th centuries by escaping into the seas to create a new world. A world of equity and justice. I know the words justice and pirate don't seem like they belong in the same sentence unless you're talking about pirates receiving justice for breaking the law. But St. Augustine, a fourth century theologian from Africa says, an unjust law is no law at all. Our dear brother John Lewis, who was a freedom fighter in the nonviolent tradition of MLK, recently passed away. I'm in awe of his life of resistance, from being a freedom writer who broke the laws of America to bring justice to the oppressed, to the sit-ins and white-only restaurants in order to bring justice to the, the oppressed, to marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to bring justice to the oppressed. John Lewis continually broke the law because he, like Martin Luther King Jr., who quoted St. Augustine in his letter from a Birmingham jail cell, knew that an unjust law is no law at all. If the civil rights movement took place on the high seas, I have no doubt that John Lewis and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been considered pirates by the empire as they continually undermined the law and order of a civilized society. There's a quote from John Lewis that I have loved. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never be afraid to make some noise and get into that good trouble, necessary trouble. Sometimes in order to truly follow Jesus, one must become active in a resistance. Sometimes our childhood legends have more to teach us about following Jesus than we could ever have imagined. More often than not, resistance is the only way forward in a world that is ever more entangled and in love with the ways of the empire. In this way, resistance is a sign of growth and maturity. There is a story that's found in all of the Gospels in the Bible, the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the Gospel of Mark is the only one that records a peculiar part of the story. And let me just recount the story and, 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 and then jump into that peculiar part. Long story short is this. In the, in the evening before Jesus is murdered, in a state-sponsored religious leader-endorsed execution, Jesus awaits his fate, praying in a garden as his disciples hang close. Jesus is betrayed. The soldiers come. Peter chops off an ear. Jesus heals it, and an unnamed disciple runs away naked. The story never tells us the disciple's name. But church tradition tells us that this unnamed naked disciple was the author Mark inserting himself into the story. 
When you think about this story, it shows us all sorts of things regarding resistance. First, when you resist ways of empire, it'll come for you. Second, Jesus teaches his followers that violence is not a form of resistance that will see the kingdom of God present. Third, sometimes resistance is a long game that doesn't look the way we expect it will. Jesus' Jesus's active resistance looked like exposing sin and death by allowing himself to be taken into custody and ultimately killed. The reason that the reason that resistance is a sacrament for folks is that it creates space for extra grace to be experienced primarily by others. The grace comes in the form of the hard and closed transforming into something soft and open. This grace that comes from resistance is often expressed as advocacy for the oppressed and the marginalized. So those who are experiencing injustice can experience the extra grace that comes from resistance. There are many things that following Jesus will call us to resist, but we wanted to highlight three that seem to fit within our framework of head, heart, and hands. Resisting inherited secondhand faith, where extra grace is experienced when faith evolves. Resisting the status quo, where extra grace is experienced in the breaking down of the assumed and predictable that gives room for the unexpected to flourish. And resisting apathy, where extra grace is experienced in the movement and embracing of the good and necessary trouble. So with that, we're going to just transition into the roundtable conversation that we've been having throughout this series on the sacraments of folks. So the sacrament of resistance is an experience of extra grace. How does this grace conflict with a secondhand faith? Um, I experience the act of resistance as an extra grace, as it comes into conflict with what I've received, because it gives me a way not just to know what I actually believe rather than repeating something, but it gives me a way to activate my faith in my daily life. Because the act of resisting is saying that things are not as they should be and being able to name from the faith that I hold of what I would say the better way is possible to be puts me into to this tension that I experience the grace of God with me because it's within that grace that names a better world is possible that gives me the hope that resistance is not futile. Um, like I know for myself, like in my journey, um, Again, being an Enneagram type four, like I've always had that bent towards trying to challenge and push. And the reality is, is that in the tradition that I that I grew up in, there wasn't really a whole lot of space for that. Like it was always pushed back on questions, dampered, like, you, you know, like people throwing out the God ways are higher than your ways. Uh, don't question God, that kind of stuff. And so it was like the faith that I held on to seemed too small for the questions that I had. So like, like, like my experience of secondhand faith was always something that was tenuous for me. And, and because of that, I ended up walking away when I was like 12 years old. Like I still believed in God. I still wanted to explore what that looked like, but it led me on this journey of always of asking all these questions throughout my teenage years and um, even movements towards pan panentheistic, which is just like the idea of, see, of seeing God in creation. Um, mm -hmm. And then the idea of even like, like, like exploring like Islam and things like that. And it was interesting because all these things that, that, I, that I tried to explore as a, as a teenager and as a, a person in my early twenties, 
all left me wanting as well. Like they were also felt like they were trying to, they weren't allowing me to become something that I owned. It was something that somebody else wanted me to have. Like, it's like, I bought this for you, please just take it. And it, and it wasn't even that there were bad things or anything like that. I'm like, I don't, I don't say that to be disparaging about anybody or anything like that, but it wasn't until this place where all of a sudden, like, I honestly, like it came from reading the Bible. Um, and there was just this moment of reading the biblical text where God, it wasn't a story that I had heard growing up. It wasn't an idea that somebody had given me, but something that I felt like tangible experience. Um, and it began to like make certain experiences that I had in my life even begin to make sense. And so it, it began to like retro project itself back into my life. And, I was, and, and, and so something I began to own in a real way. So for me, it, it like, the, like being able to resist the secondhand version of faith, it took me on a really long journey, but it created the space for me to actually come to a place where God wasn't just something I was told about, but something that was real to me in a very tangible way. So I was really curious, um, the way you phrase one part of it is the insistence, now um, granted from benevolent, loving, good, charitable, God-honoring people. So not, not from just the other that you're like, ah, but there is an insistence that the secondhand faith was carrying forward what they found valuable. Mm -hmm. um, how did, how did that um, make it so you, you had to move away? Because you said you couldn't ask questions. Um, how do you not do that? Because we ha will have the same habit of wanting to say, take my secondhand faith. Um, here's the points I find valuable. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I, I get that. And I think like, like this is why the sacrament of resistance goes hand in hand with the sacrament of questioning and then the sacrament of listening. Right. And also the sacrament of presence, like all these three things, I think, kind of lead us to this place of resistance. And I don't think it, like I don't think like if you don't have that, if you don't value questioning, you're going to just repeat the cycle and try, even though maybe you believe something different, you're still going to want to hand that off to somebody else versus saying that your questions and then what you're hearing and then what we're hearing and listening together as a community actually matters. Right. And so because um, if you if you can't land at those two places and that person's presence can become troublesome because it might lead other people astray. And, and you know, to be fair, um, like like many people in our community, many people that we have conversations with have experienced that that pain of being rejected by your community because you because you can no longer hold on to the version of faith that they want you to have. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you make any, you know, it's almost like they handed it to you and said, if you make any changes to this, I'm taking it back. And, yeah. and, and obviously that's not a helpful or healthy way for us to be able to hold on to faith in any capacity. Yeah. That kind of just felt like the difference between like renting an apartment and buying a house. It's like, you know, if you rent it, you got to keep it the way they want you to keep it. If you break it, you're in trouble. But when you have your own place, it, it's, it's different. It'll always be different. You, you can explore it in a completely different way. Um, it's, it's yours, it's not somebody else's. Mm, uh, for me growing up, uh, I always struggled, I struggled with this uh, idea of secondhand faith a lot. Um, I always joked that I was born, uh, I was born one day and then a couple weeks later, I was sitting in a pew in, in a little car seat thing. Um, and, once I grew up to realize and reflect on the idea that, you know, I've only known this, I've, since I was young, the idea of God has always been a reality to me. I've never not known 
um, what it would be like to, to, to not follow him or not believe, not know all these things. And it kind of felt like an arranged marriage to me. Um, it felt like, and especially culturally, that was just a metaphor that, that spoke to me in the sense that, you know, I didn't have a choice in who I was marrying. It was chosen for me. And at the beginning of some arranged marriages, there might not be an actual relationship. There might not be genuine love, but you go through the motions of supporting one another as that role of husband or wife. But then there comes this moment when you actually get to know each other and you start to understand who that person is for who they are, not just as the title of being your spouse. Um, and then you actually start to have a genuine relationship. Then it begins to be something real uh, between the two people. And that's kind of what the experience was like for me. At first it was arranged. I didn't have a choice. I inherited it, but I had to I had to make this choice, you know, is this something I want to continue to do or is this something I want to own for myself and move forward? And it's a choice we all have to make at some point if we want to have a deeper, genuine uh, relationship. How do we keep this notion for, we all spoke of the second handed as being handed down passed to us, but often, as you said, Carl, we have this time that, um, we need to be able to own it ourselves, but some people are just looking for a new secondhand faith. So they say they're owning, but all they want is a new master, a new voice to dictate a new secondhand, not a lived experience. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, de definitely. I think, you know, like we talked about in the sacrament of questioning, um, like the either like the, the adult education theory that I used or the stages of faith that Megan brought to the table, um, both of those ideas have this notion that there are gonna be some people who are just gonna be more comfortable being handed the answer, right? Whether the answer is right or wrong, it doesn't really matter for them. They just, they, they need someone to hand them an answer. And then there's gonna be those who are gonna migrate and drift and find themselves uh, in a sea of uncertainty and you know, being coming comfortable with the, the tension of questioning and things like that. And so I think for some people, they, that's what they need. And that's what helps them to love Jesus and love people more. Honestly, like there's, I used to want to push them and, and be like, no, no, you got to learn how to figure this out. You got to, you got to, you got to own this. And for those though, that like that, that secondhand faith, it just is not going to suffice for them. I'm, I'm just more interested in creating space for that now. Like, how do we have those conversations and how do I not just repeat the cycle with them? Like, I don't want, I don't want to just cast a new burden upon you or new shackles upon you in a sense. Calling secondhand faith shackles might be a little bit harsh, but you get my point, right? Like, I want to help them find liberation to, in order to own their faith um, in a way that is, is authentic and real and honest for them. So. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think it that does it falls on the teachers. Um, at some point, there's a responsibility that lies in the facilitators of community um, and, and those who are trying to present a, a way to think. Um, there's there's something that falls on them too, but I think as much as questioning uh, questioning your faith seems scary and hard, I think running from secondhand faith to secondhand faith is also exhausting. 
Because at some point it crumbles. At some point something happens in your life and the band-aid doesn't work. It's not sticky anymore. Um, the answers don't quite suffice for whatever's happening in your life. And so you can run to the next one that works, but it's something's going to happen and it's going to crumble again. And you just end up running from idea to idea, looking for one that sticks. And, and it doesn't because there are things that are... Uh, drenched in mystery still. There are still things that we are trying to figure out together as a community. Um, and at some point that that need for questioning will will come up in your life in a way where you have to choose to embrace it or keep running yourself into the ground. Oh, that's awesome. I can't help but think of the, the metaphor that you brought forth. Um, I believe it was a sacrament of questioning as well um, about like being adrift in the sea, right? And, and mm -hmm. the idea of mystery and like you, like, and, and just even what you're saying, that it's, like, it's almost like certain people, like they're spending all their energy trying to paddle towards certain things that they think are land that are going to help them find some sort of new grounding. And eventually you just have to be comfortable drifting. Otherwise you'll just end up drowning one or one or the other. Right. So it's like either you're, you, you know, you learn how to drift or you learn how to, or you end up drowning one or the other. So. Yep. Yeah. That's true. Uh, being from California, I just was thinking like, land shakes like there's always going to be earthquakes so you can't really you never know when it's going to come but it's going to come the land's going to tremble and things are going to get uncertain okay second question how do we give room for the unexpected and the extra grace that comes from resisting the status quo in this space the ability to create the room for the unexpected is I would say learning to decenter ourselves because um, for me, secondhand faith has always been um, most problematic, especially for my temperament, because I'll research and then say, well, no, according to these three points, that's, that's how you read it. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't leave a lot of room for the other voices to push. So I just put myself as the new author of status quo-ness, mm -hmm. but to decenter myself and then to learn an act of discernment, which would point to the sacrament of, uh, being able to listen, which is saying, is this a difference of reading that can bring new life? Or is this an ignoring of another person's humanity? And between those two points, if I can answer that, I think it creates that space as we resist status quo to have room for multiple readings. Yeah, no, but for, for, yeah, for me, I think, um, like creating space for that, that, that the room of unexpected, uh, in the midst of of challenging or resisting status quo, I think like there's that there's like the mundane and there's the ordinary and there's the things that that provide us with comfort. And it, and and for most people, those things it doesn't matter whether they're right and it doesn't matter whether they're just. It's like that's just the way that it is, and it provides me comfort to know that that's the way that it is. And I would say that for most people, the status quo doesn't actually work, right? It, it like the status quo usually only benefits a handful of people. But because everybody's comfortable with it, nobody can challenge it. And so the idea of, of resisting the status quo, it creates room for the unexpected because all of a sudden certainty is out the window, comfort is out the window, and all that's left is the possibility of something new, something different, something else emerging. And in the midst of that, like, you know, we talked about before, like it's, it's a projectile in one sense, right? It could be good. It could be bad. We don't really know what it is, but it, it still creates that space for something new. And the status quo in that sense um, when it's broken, um, what pours out of it has the possibility 
to, to create a more equitable future for people or more equitable faith for people or more embracing an authentic faith. But it also has the possibility within it to actually send people to something that is just as rigid or just as hard as we talked about before. Like, like, like some people are going to return, um, but just maybe in a, in a negative juxtaposition towards the same kind of version of faith that they walked away from. Yeah, that works well because you're really putting into mind that what we don't want to become, what closes off the future is if we just say we're the new gatekeepers yeah. rather than saying we shouldn't have a gate. Exactly. Um, especially within this, that it just dawned on me as you're saying the status quo is dedicated to repeating cycles. It doesn't care what the cycle is. It just cares that it's stable and repeatable. Yeah. It may be a terrible ending, mm -hmm. but we can expect it and that's okay. The very act of resisting itself is what gives us the ability for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. So that, like with what you're saying, that was hitting my mind. Like that was just beautiful because this sacrament, the extra grace is experienced because it's the only way towards the unexpected. Yeah. It's the only way towards God is projectile that could lead us to new. So Glenn, bouncing off of what you said on uh, the status quo, being dependent upon the ability to repeat itself. I think that resistance is in a similar way dependent on hope for good change. Um, mm. There's a commitment to change that they're valuing change uh, towards something better, towards a more just and equitable future, like Carl said. Um, and I think change, it, as we all know, it scares people. Change is something that all of us in some way or another struggle with at one point in our lives. And, but it's something, learning to love change, learning to embrace change um, and be open to it is really important uh, for creating the world that we want to see and want to move towards. And I'm not sure who said this, this isn't my thought, but this was shared in one of my classes um, uh, in the past two years of schooling. And, it was the idea that uh, people aren't afraid of change. Uh, they're afraid of loss. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you one day won the lottery, you got, you know, $300 million, that would be a change. And you'd be really excited about it. You'd be really happy that you have all these new resources, all of these different things. In that sense, you aren't afraid of change, but you are afraid when you lose something, when something, you lose a resource, you lose a friend, uh, something that you cherished is threatened to, to leave. Um, and I think it's really important to know the difference of that. Uh, and when you can identify what loss you are afraid of um, or what you would be afraid to lose, you can be more open to the unexpected. You could take the time to mourn that, but realize that this is something we have to lose in order to make more space for others in order to pursue justice. Um, so I think that relationship between resistance and change is really interesting and important to, uh, to focus on too. Uh, th that's really good. Like I, lo I love what you were saying about loss and change. Um, but I, I, I would say, I would probably even push it a little bit step, a step further is that within every, every change, there actually is loss, right? Yeah. Like if you won the lottery, um, your life is gonna change but you are going to lose some things in the process. You may have gained a lot of money, but you're going to lose some other things in the process. Yeah. Um, right. And so, so like, even in that notion, like, like learning how to lament, learning how to, to, to grieve the loss 
and, and, and then become okay with loss then opens up the possibility for change to be embraced, you know, in, in, in a positive and constructive way. So I, I just love what you said about that, that change and loss part there and just want to push it a little further. Yeah, I really appreciated the way you held um, that sometimes we can sound like with a sacrament of resistance, that change is always to be good and celebrated, but to get permission to mourn, to say that this may have been good for a time, but not for now. This may have been an answer for a decade, but not for a life. Um, Gives us at least give me hope that we can process some and be able to name that was good for me then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as life sustaining now. And so it's okay to let go, but it's also okay that it's painful too. How do we embrace and apply the idea of good and necessary trouble in resisting apathy? What does resisting apathy look like in our community? Uh, I really love this question, especially in light of the passage we got to go through today with the Garden of Gethsemane and Mark. Because most of us would try to think around avoiding trouble is actually a virtue of wisdom. But we see within the story of Jesus that he entered into the very heart of Jerusalem during high holy day festivals, during a time when everyone's expecting a violent revolt. And he faced the good and necessary trouble. And that for me, this idea of the good and necessary as an act of resisting apathy, forces me to name where are the parts of the system that don't work for life? Like for Jesus, the part that really gets explicitly named is the right of the revolutionary to win the kingdom by a sword could not maintain, even though it was a good thing for the sixth century BCE. It was a good thing for some of the prophets you would read, but he said, no, no, in this new kingdom, the good and necessary is to face the violence and say no. Um, and it really pushes me to say that the only thing that would undo Jesus' kingdom in that is an apathetic response to say, no, no, this is the way things work. Because apathy is not lack of action in this. It's lack of active change. It's lack of saying, I can embrace a new way. Because um, in the same way that they do brain scans, you only get a really active brain the first few times you make a decision. They've done live action brain tests and found that it goes static and dead once you have made the decision a few times, even though your experience of it, you always think you're active. You're not being apathetic. And that's really where this pulled me into. We can apathetically enter into a battle and war because that's just the way it goes, rather than the act of resistance, which is standing with Christ saying no. Well, I think like in responding to that question around the idea of good and necessary trouble, uh, it leads me back to some of the co- a conversation we we're actually having a little bit offline around like when, when, like like the idea of the pirate metaphor or imagery. Is that going to lead us into kind of cowboy justice? Like if we're talking about pirate justice, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's it's interesting that like that good and necessary trouble, um, even using that imagery. And if you in beginning to understand that narrative is is something that it, it was necessary in order to actually create a more empathetic empire in the in, in the in the future like because like you have i don't know like how much you guys know about pirate history and all that kind of stuff or how much you even care about pirate history um but you have this notion that like it, like you know the whole notion of like you know pirates swinging from the gallows and, and they were an enemy of the state and enemy of the empire um but because of their act of resistance 
it event and because it affected commerce, because like pirates are actually beginning to be seen as heroes by the common people, uh, it forced the empire to begin to pardon the pirates. And so they tried to almost they tried to win over the pirates by the notion of, well, well let's make you comfortable again within the empire. Right, kind of like leading us back to like that status quo part of it. Um, and so you had this notion of, of like re, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, reassimilation in back, reassimilation back into the empire. But I think like the good and necessary trouble part then becomes like those who just realize that it doesn't matter if it, if it, if it seems cordial, it doesn't matter if it seems nice, it doesn't matter if it seems comfortable. Um, no level of re-assimilation is going to actually help us move into a just and equitable um, and e equitable world. And I think like that's where you had kind of like like the legendary pirates that came into, in, into play. And it wasn't about cowboy justice. It wasn't about revenge on the high seas or something like that. And although like those are the stories that, that, that are, you know, that really fascinate and capture our imagination. And absolutely, like, they were violent pirates. I'm not trying to say that they were like nonviolent Gandhis floating around in boats or anything like that. Uh, but you, but, but at the end of the day though, like the, the whole philosophy behind it was that the empire doesn't work, the status quo doesn't work and it has to be cracked open. And so I think like the good and necessary trouble that we learn from that going forward is that like the reality is that the pardon created apathy, right? Because like those who took the pardon was like, well, I'm good. I've created a more just and equitable thing for myself, but it doesn't work for everybody. And I think if it, it, it's, it's the whole saying like, we're not free until everybody's free, right? Like, like if, if anybody, bears chains, then we all bear chains if we actually understand some notion of, of true humanity, um, especially in light of following Jesus, right? If, if Jesus is our best reflection of true humanity or best example of true humanity, um, there's this notion that even to the point of death, he's willing to, there, there's this notion of movement towards liberating everything and all things from bondage. And so I think like, like, like that, that's the good and necessary trouble is, is realizing that we have to keep struggling. We have to keep moving. We have to, you know, um, we have to keep fighting and resisting um, so that all of us can experience freedom. And and not some sort of like, you know, truthfully, not some sort of patriotic version of freedom that says we're free because we're the best country in the world or something like that. And, you know, whether you're American, whether you're Canadian, we all have it in our national anthems. You know, we all stand there and talk about, you know, like in Canada, on guard for thee and all this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And, um, and it's and, and it's it's all good to to love where you're from and to and to love your people, but if if it, if it stops there, um, and you're apathetic to the rest of the world around you, you are you are just as much like guilty of being part of the systems of oppression in this world. Um, and, and so, unless you're actively resisting them, then you're actively participating in them, and there, there is no in between there. No, I just want to ask you something in that in the assimilating language. Would you say it's assimilation or actually domestication? Because they never wanted them fully back into, at least when I've only really read up on like some of the French privateers use of pirating, they didn't want them fully back into their culture. They wanted to aim them at the English trade. They wanted to aim them and domesticate them for the tool of empire. And I find um, in some of the same way within our faith tradition, within what it is going towards apathy, most of the edgy people that are asking good questions, no one, no one wants them fully back in. They want to be able to aim them to ask questions of the people they dislike. 
So it, be, it becomes utilitarian or like what Christianity did with the Vikings. We converted them. And then once they're becoming actually assimilated, became inconvenient, we needed a warrior. They said, wait, let us domesticate you and send you towards our enemy over here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with that. I think, but I think domestication and assimilation in that sense are one and the same, right? Mm. Assimilation is just a, is the language of empire that says we want you to become what we want you to become, right? Like, it, and, and so that's domestication. Um, so if you have something that's feral and wild, um, to domesticate it is to assimilate it into something useful for what you want it to become, right? So, I think. Um Bouncing off of some of the things you were saying, Carl, uh, part of embracing and applying the idea of good and necessary trouble um, to resist apathy, uh, which you do have to start with the idea of not just caring about things that only affect you. And I think that's a, I can speak for the U.S. being an extreme problem where the value for of the individual is so high that we we've ceased to care for the other we've ceased to care for the community we only speak up if it directly affects us um and i think that's the first problem you have to start with uh it's it's learning to use your freedom not just for yourself but use your freedom to free others like you were also um talking about uh and i think that in how it looks like in our community I think that in a, in a broken system, uh, when you have a firsthand faith uh, and you choose to embrace the sacrament of resistance and, and you, you value good and necessary trouble, um, it leads you to civil disobedience, I think. I think that it's an important thing that I've been exploring as part of our calling as Christians to to not participate in unjust systems. And I know that there's this high value of, of being, uh, uh, I, in some churches, I think there's this high value of following the rules, following the law, being law followers. When, when we look at the life of Jesus, he was, that's the last thing that they would describe him as, um, at least the religious authorities, that they, that would not be words that they would use to describe who Jesus is. Um, so often in a, in a broken system with a firsthand faith, I think that it does lead you to opportunities for civil disobedience to sort of like the Game of Thrones idea to break the wheel, to break the system um, because it's not working for, it's not working for everybody. Uh, I love that. I love the, even like just the language that you're using there um, and the idea like, well, like to follow Jesus is to reject the notion of being a law abiding citizen in a sense. Um, and that, yeah, uh, and I think that's just a powerful thought because I know most people are going to hear that and be like, what the heck, uh, nah, what are you talking about? Like, you know, to be a good citizen is the, is the job of, of, of a follower of Christ. And, and that's, and I think that just plays into the notion that like following Jesus has been kind of usurped and assimilated and domesticated um into the empire and the empire has formed it at will to make it what it wants in order to utilize it you know to to, to talk like to coin uh is it Karl marx's phrase to make it an opiate for the people you know what i mean and in that sense uh following jesus and religion in that sense 
has actually done has done a lot of damage. But when it's when it's set free, when it's returned to the wild, when uh, it, it it no longer wants to, when it no longer um, obeys the bonds of domestication, to use the language that Glenn was saying there, uh, it's a beautiful thing, and 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 it, and it demands that we are no longer law-abiding citizens in that sense. And I and I think that's a beautiful imagery that I'm going to have to sit with because it, it on one part it makes me excited, and on the other part it's like that's a scary proposition because of the way that we're raised in this, we're raised in the middle of empire. Well, and I'd say um, this really points back to the first question we're discussing of um, that tension of secondhand faith, because this is part of our mythos for actually Canada and America is we say we are Christian countries who brought Christianity to North America, even though it costs 90% of the indigenous people's lives we still have it as the mythos of the Christian nations that brought peace, liberty, and um, civilization to the barbarians because those are secondhand stories, secondhand faith of a time that didn't value all bodies. Yeah. So absolutely, um, apathy in this would be saying that, no, we can trust the system because the system has always worked for the good. Mm -hmm. um, or terrible things doesn't happen because we're a Christian nation, which is set on both sides. So it's a North American trait on that one to say manifest destiny, Jesus by the musket in the Bible. And we have to actively resist as Megan said, and say that the call to Jesus, even though there are some parts of the epistles, which said that we need to obey governing voices. We have to hold that in the tension of the Jesus who didn't just disobey religious leaders because we like to say that, mm -hmm. but he stood in front of Pilate, asked a direct question. He said, ah, I don't have time for you. Yeah. said, is this true? He goes, what have you heard? Like he was so belligerent towards power structures that were the, the oppressive political ones that it, it could not be seen as law abiding. And the way he protested political and religious authority was an affront to Rome, which is why he got crucified. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I just wanted to just say that, like, even, yeah, like when you when you're talking about, like, even in the Bible, it says, you know, to, to be law abiding in a sense, mm -hmm. um, as much as it doesn't conflict with following Jesus. Like, that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. the next line. And we often talk about law abiding without talking about how, like, unless it conflicts. And at that point, you actually have to break, you have to break the law. And we're actually called to, Biblically, if like if for people who love that language of like to be a biblical Christian means you have to break the law if it means um, going, to, you know, if the law goes against following Jesus. And, and so I think in that sense, like we got to hold like, like we, we got to hold on to that part of, as well. Like I, So I love what you're saying. But I just think like we often can we can talk about the life of Jesus and how it models that for sure. And if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, then we have to be, you know. Um, I, I just think, I just don't think there's a way in the middle of empire to be law abiding in that. And to notice who he was not abiding for. He was not abiding for the Samaritan who was being abused. He was not abiding for the woman who's being scapegoated, even though she was caught in the act of adultery, presumably with a John nearby. Um, he, he fought against the exclusion of the Gentile and he, in this way, he violated ethic codes, social codes, expectations, and he violated Rome's oppressive system by saying, we will not do war on your terms. If, like it says in Matthew, 
Do you not know I have 12,000 legions of angels I could call, but that is not the way this new world will be born. Now, as we're coming to the end, since we got to discuss so many things, we want to try to bring it into a summary, something that can stay in the mind. And within the first question that we discussed of the sacrament of resistance as an extra grace, re coming into conflict with a secondhand faith, we found that the sacrament of questioning, listening, presence, and lead to resistance while keeping us open to new expansive readings and experiences. And as we step into that second moment, how do we give room for the unexpected and the extra grace that comes from resisting the status quo? We found we keep it by holding on to the hope for good change and honoring our need to mourn change because all these things were valuable to us. And it's all right that we experience grief as we move on to the hope of something better. And coming into the third point of how do we embrace and apply the idea of good and necessary trouble and resisting apathy. And we found that as we embody Jesus, we do not champion law and order. We champion grace in Christ. And that in this, we follow and obey and adhere to the laws as long as they do not violate our neighbor or the mission of Jesus for a new world. Then we proudly resist as the call to Christ.